Mountain believes every brand should be on TV, regardless of budget or size. That's why their self-serve performance TV platform takes the difficulty and expense out of connected TV advertising. With Performance TV, you get access to tens of thousands of audience segments so you can always find your target customer. Mountain serves your ads exclusively on premium streaming networks to elevate your brand profile and auto-optimizes your campaigns thousands of times a day to ensure you're always at peak performance. Visit mountain.com to learn more. Welcome to Great Minds and our guest today, and this is a real privilege and we're doing an in-person record, which we love, is David Doft. David is the chief financial officer of Emerald, which is our new parent company here at Advertising Week. And this is uh, part two of a two-parter. We had Hervé on about a month or so ago, the CEO, and we're delighted now to have you on, David, and you are our original point of contact. You and I have a unique history in the evolution of this uh, new partnership, which we are just thrilled about uh, to be under your umbrella. And I'm really glad to have you on Great Minds. So welcome. Thank you, Matt. It's really great to be here. Great. So, David, you, you have a, a, an unusual start to your career uh, in a sense that you were very grounded in the research side of the finance world, working for some great institutions, among them a legendary firm, Donaldson, Lufkin, and Genret. So I'd love to start by talking about that as sort of a foundation for what has become a you know multi-decade career, rising up you know to a, being a chief financial officer of a pretty major company. But that grounding and research, uh, you know, sort of jumped out at us. So it, it is a really interesting and unique background, especially for uh, the job I sit in today. Uh, growing up, I grew up uh, essentially on Wall Street. Uh, my father was a stockbroker. Uh, we listened to financial news at the dinner table every night. Uh, and I, I was convinced my entire career would be working on Wall Street. And so I went to school for that. Uh, I was a finance major. And, and uh, coming out, um, I realized I wasn't really so much into the banking side as I was into the stock side of things. Uh, and, and going into research seemed to make sense uh, where I could uh, study companies, kind of predict where they're going, recommend stock ideas to people. Uh, and, and that's kind of how it started. And um, I happened to also be a uh, huge film buff. And so my goal was, can I end up working on Wall Street, but working in the, something related to the media industry? and was fortunate enough after starting out researching retail companies to end up researching media companies and then ultimately honing in on advertising companies. So that research foundation, that I got to think that's a really great grounding for someone who has the job that you do. You really got to look at the underbelly of businesses. That's right. Uh, you know, that, that job um, is, a, is a great mix of financial analysis uh, tearing apart the financials of companies, uh, understanding um, in, in great detail their business models, how they operate, uh, how they invest, uh, what they expect out of those investments in terms of growth and their strategies, and then having access to the actual leaders of those companies 
who, who come up with those strategies. And so I was really fortunate at a very young age to have conversations like this uh, with CEOs, uh, I'll choose advertising industry CEOs, Martin Sorrell, John Wren, um, uh, um, you know, CEOs of, of Disney and, and Telecommunications Inc. And like go down the list of, of major media companies, um, especially the ones back in, in the 90s when I started out doing this. And, and I had the benefit of being able to ask deep strategic questions uh, about their business, about their plans, about their performance uh, that allowed me to shape a, a view of, of where the industry was going and, and where the industry was going across many aspects of the media industry. And, and that's really helped me a lot as I shifted to the operating side of the world uh, of, of helping run companies uh, initially in the advertising agency world uh, at my last job and now here at Emerald uh, because uh, understanding all the moving pieces of advertising budgets, um, uh, how they're allocated, where they're allocated, what what clients expect to get out of those budgets, um, very much help shape a worldview of of what we should be. What are the products and services we should offer to provide value so that we could earn our right to a larger share of those budgets because we deliver value for them. It's fantastic um, grounding. Uh, but the landscape then was very different. We're talking about 92, 93, 94, 95, way in the pre-digital era. Mm -hmm. I imagine the way that job gets done today is very different. Uh, it, it is. Um, that's, that's for sure. Uh, back then, it was a, a lot of reading uh, SEC filings uh, without having the tools that pull the information out for you. You had to find it yourself. You had to, you had to dig. Uh, and um, that, that's a great skill set, by the way, knowing how to dig, yeah. to like never give up until you find the information you need uh, that you know, could take a long time and then get creative on how you're going to find it. Uh, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll give an example. I, I covered uh, some companies in, um, in the animation sector. Uh, there were a couple of public companies back then, uh, and they weren't really well followed. So I was kind of the go-to guy on Wall Street for for actually children's entertainment because of my focus on that. And and I, one of the emerging revenue streams for these companies were monetizing the IP through licensing. So I, I should become an expert on how companies monetize IP through licensing, and and that took me down a a, a bit of a rabbit hole of trying to dig through. But I found sources publications around that business that helped me understand uh, what the types of deals, the percentages that can be earned, the different uh, revenue streams that can come out of that, that I, I then could put against a reasonable financial model in predicting growth of a what was an emerging revenue stream for some of these companies to then assign value to it. Of, of I ultimately was recommending one of the stocks there uh, and gave a point of view on that business very different than anyone else in the street because they weren't giving any credit for this. And, and so um, th that's a skill set that I, I still use. Uh, I use it for our own business. Uh, I use it in, in trying to bring out the kind of underlying truths of, of, uh, of our own performance in different ways that can give us insight to help make better decisions going forward. And that really is, in a sense, analog grounding in a digital world. But that mm -hmm. ability to dig, to look, to do whatever it takes to find that information, that's a lifetime attribute. It, it is uh, very much so a lifetime attribute. 
the, the other lifetime attribute I would say, which is maybe not so great, is, is the, the hours of work that you had to put in. And, uh, right. you know, I've never quite slowed down, but, uh, yeah. but you know, that, that's part of the Wall Street training. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So you uh, end up where we first met um, in the business that you wanted to be in uh, at MDC. But what I don't know is how you got there. It's actually a really interesting story. So, uh, you know, after starting out uh, covering broader media, I ended up um, honing in on, on advertising and marketing services uh, as, as my focus on Wall Street. And, uh, and as out of that, I, I started to um, create a worldview uh, around that industry very centered on data. Uh, now, this was 96, 97, 98. Uh, and it was right when the internet was emerging as a consumer medium. Uh, and, uh, and I was talking about things that were um, what soon to became known as CRM. Um, I didn't come up with the concept. It was what I was hearing, what emerging companies I was seeing, uh, and, and, and knew that in this new interactive world, um, more and more things were going to revolve around data, uh, obviously more around digital, uh, and, and had a a belief that um, over time, um, as the world becomes more addressable, that more and more dollars would shift from branded dollars to almost direct response oriented dollars, because they can. Um, and, uh, and you could prove out the value of what you're spend more, spending more directly. And so I began to write thematic research pieces um, around the evolution of advertising. That was actually the title, uh, a, a boastful title, I would say, in hindsight, but it was the, uh, one of the titles. Um, but, but the original title was actually, because um, I like to play off pop culture themes, uh, Climbing the Stairway to Customer Knowledge Heaven. Um, and, and so I had my Stairway to Heaven theme, and that as you moved up the stairway, the, the would be higher value services that could be offered by agencies that ultimately cult, uh, culminated in data. Uh, and um, and analytics and visib and, and and that sort of ability to to target marketing uh, so effectively that you can measure return and um, uh, and create a whole lot more value and it got a lot of attention uh, a lot of attention from the companies I covered uh, and uh, and again no no PDFs back then no uh, uh, you know early days of internet and so I was getting requests uh, from companies for um, you know, can you send us 20 copies of that report to give out at our board meetings? I was, I was stunned. Um, I, I was, you know, in my 20s. I, I learned this all from the outside. Um, uh, it, it actually, one of the things it taught me was about outside perspectives and the value of them, because um, you don't have tunnel vision on what things have been and thus what they, what the world thinks they should be. You get to judge. Uh, what they can be, and 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 so I, I appreciate outside perspectives from people very much to this day. Uh, but I, I kind of lucked into this point of view that that happened to be largely right, um, and so uh, uh, that led one of the companies to eventually call and try to hire me. Um, now I I didn't take the job, uh, and that's actually the funny part of the story. Uh, and so Miles Nadell, who is the founder of MDC Partners. Um, uh, I uh, uh, had tried to recruit me for a number of years, but I, but I ultimately went to um, work at a hedge fund uh, and run a portfolio of technology, media, and telecom investments globally, 
which just added to my perspective of of the industry and how it's evolving, which was was very valuable. But um, when I decided I really wanted to build a company versus um, own pieces and, and trade them around, um, uh, well, Miles had come in uh, after initially offering me a kind of strategy and corporate development leadership role, uh, ultimately offered me the CFO role to help him build MDC Partners, uh, which back then was a, a very small Canadian holding company uh, that had just um, really entered the U.S. after uh, buying Crispin Porter and Bogusky and Kirschenbaum Pond. And you're a very young guy at that point. You're in what, your mid to early 30s? Uh, I, w- I was 35 when okay. I became CFO of MDC Partners. That's right. That's pretty young for a CFO. Uh, it is. It is. Yeah. Uh, I, I've been fortunate to have, have been ahead of my age in a lot of my jobs. That's fantastic. Uh, uh, so it, um, I progressed quickly on Wall Street and, and thankfully was able to jump into this. And uh, what was your dad's take? You sort of leaving the Wall Street heard, if you will, and going into this crazy advertising and media business? You know, he, he was really supportive. Uh, the, the reality is it was a, it was a public company. Uh, and, and so I think what was exciting uh, to him and, and, and to my mother as well was, you know, that it was a stock in and of itself that could be followed every day. Okay. Um, and so uh, I, I began to get questions about my stock. Your stock was up today. Your stock was down today. What what happened? And I was like, ah, don't ask me about the day to day of the stock. Like, right, I, I can't right, deal with that. Right. But um, I try not to think about the day to day. That's how you run a business for the long term. Uh, but the stock is that daily measuring point that uh, that you have. And um, it, it's funny when we moved MDC's headquarters in 2011. Um, we um, Miles put in a uh, a ticker uh, in the uh, cafe area uh, and entry area of the office um and i refused to allow the mdc stock price to be on the ticker i i I don't want anyone looking at this thing every day right too much too much yeah and those were incredible days i mean i knew miles uh, not nearly as well as you did but certainly knew miles quite well and many of the heads of the family of companies that they bought starting with chuck porter who was and remains a dear friend that was an incredible run that MDC had. They were, they were the, the really, the hottest thing going for quite some time. We had an unbelievable run. I, I, I think that's right. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the company bought, um, initially invested in Crispin Porter, I believe in 2003. I, I didn't end up joining until 2007, uh, but, um, the influence of what Chuck and Alex Bogusky were doing uh, was very clear on Miles. On, and, and it's what led him to believe that there was uh, a different approach to a holding company. Um, now, a lot of people have talked about, you know, the new holding company models and this and that. But I think MDC was probably the original new holding company model. Uh, and, and a lot of that was around creative at the center. Um, and, and, and very much the influence, uh, from, from Chuck and Alex. Uh, and, uh, a lot of it was that the execution could be anything, uh, which was uh, brilliant at the time that the internet was just coming of age because while every other agency and every other holding company, um, their answer to digital was we're going to buy a digital agency and we're going to stand it up next to 
our traditional agency, our legacy agencies, and they're going to be different businesses, and they're going to have different P&Ls. And, and you know what happens when that happens? They never work together. There's always a fight over the money, right? It's a, it's a any, anyone who's listening, who's, who's running a business and has, buys somebody or has multiple businesses under their umbrella, if you expect them to work together, you, you need to have one P&L. You need to have a solve for that so that everyone gets the value for, for what they're delivering. And um, now, we had many different agencies that had their own P&Ls, that's true, but the offerings were not separate in that way. Uh, and so um, uh, that, that actually was the catalyst of Miles reaching out to me uh, because MDC historically was largely a printing company. Um, uh, it had um, printing assets, it had secured printing assets that printed, it, it printed money for some foreign countries. It printed stamps, it printed credit cards. It was like th that sort of printing and then had a couple of small marketing assets. Um, and then the insight from Chuck um, kind of led to this light bulb uh, of what a, a business could be. And so then I came in and I helped craft the strategy. Uh, and that actually started before I joined. So I, when, I, when I decided not to join initially, I did agree to sign on as a consultant. Uh, and I worked with Miles and, and some of the other leaders there, uh, brilliant people that, that don't get a lot of recognition uh, today. Um, Graham Rosenberg, Rob Dixon, Gavin Schwartzman, who were other leaders there who were helping to build this portfolio. Um, brilliant guys. It was a great team and um, uh, help uh, build this strategy about creative at the core and then identify all the potential agencies that they could add to the portfolio to build out the service offering uh, to, to scale the business in the United States. And during your tenure, some brilliant acquisitions. That, that's right. And so, so then after I joined full time, I uh, was really able to help um, restructure the capital structure and then finance an acquisition strategy that allowed us to get very aggressive. And, and so um, I, I joined in the summer of 2007. Uh, we were about 400 million of revenue and about 30, 35 million of EBITDA. Uh, and over the next seven years, we took it to a billion and a half of revenue and 200 million of EBITDA and added uh, amazing uh, agencies, uh, 72 and Sunny, Anomaly, uh, uh, Y Media Labs, uh, donor, uh, instrument, uh, team enterprises, Allison and partners. Uh, and these, these firms are incredible, uh, brilliant leaders, um, visionaries in their own right, uh, and, um, uh, and made us the place to be. Um, the, the names of people that have come through our network um, are the names that lead uh, almost every, that's overstating it, many of the largest agencies in the world right now yeah. um, are are alumni of, of those firms. Yeah, it was an incredible form system of talent. Let's talk about Chuck, who, who we both know really well and doesn't get talked about enough. Such a special guy. Yeah. And uh, was always, you know, the most entertaining person in any room he was in. But super smart in, and kind of never wanted you to know just how, I think, how smart he was. You know, he liked to play more of a character. But Chuck beyond being a brilliant guy to be around, really knew what he was doing. Chuck was a smart guy. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, a, a big part of that is um, he knew great people when he saw them and he brought them in. And he knew great agencies when he saw them and, and that helped us build a pipeline. And, and what, was, what was amazing about it was um, uh, 
you know, often we'd have someone call to get into an agency that was emerging that we wanted to get to know to see if, you know, we could uh, uh, acquire them and, you know, the calls wouldn't get answered. And then we'd call Chuck, hey, Chuck, can you give these guys a call? And everyone took his call. Um, he, he was that well respected in the industry for, for what they had done at, at CPMB. Uh, and he had a really good combination, uh, obviously, of, of creative savvy. Uh, and by then, he was, was not day-to-day -day on, on business um, by the time I got there, uh, but business savvy um, and, and surrounding himself with, with great people. Yeah, one of the people he connected us to who still comes to Advertising Week every year is that great Minneapolis agency, Colin McVoy. Yes. And uh, Christine Fructy and her team, uh, we've been out there a few times, Louise on our, our staff here who runs New York and our global partnerships for Advertising Week, we were invited by the Target, the Roundell people, their media arm, which is a big partner of ours yes. every year here in New York. And uh, a couple of years ago, after Advertising Week, they invited us to come out and speak to their group and sort of share, you know, the most important findings and revelations from the thought leadership stage. So we spent a couple of days in Minneapolis and we were not going to go there and not give Christine a call. <laughs> and she had us over to the agency and we all, the Yankees were actually playing the Twins in the playoffs. We all went to Target Field, uh, which is a great ballpark. Uh, but that is a great shop. And um, there's a certain class I find to, I've been to 72 and Sunny headquarters in Amsterdam and, you know, there's a certain way. These were all, you just tell, they were full of special people yes. and really passionate about the business. I, I, I should have mentioned them before. Christine has done a brilliant job with that agency. Um, it, it definitely uh, was a little under the radar relative to some of the other ones in terms of, of profile, uh, but yet produced uh, amazing work. Uh, had a great slate of clients, and and I would say, you know, ad agencies are volatile animals. You know, you win, you lose. When you win, you can grow twenty percent in a year, and if you lose, you could drop fifteen, twenty percent. But 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 if you're great, you keep making it up. You you win the next one, and you make it up. And 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 that's why you know groups of agencies make sense as public company vehicles because the the portfolio reduces the volatility. Um, except Cole McVoy, every year, every year grew, every year. I, like, like unbelievably well-managed, um, unbelievable at new business, uh, and, and they delivered. They had great, great case studies, uh, and, and it was all under her leadership. I, I think she's running for 15 years now, yeah. uh, give or take, and um, uh, the, the, the team loves her. Uh, she's amazing at what she does. I, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, big fan, and I love that city. It is. Uh, it is. Minneapolis, St. Paul hotbed of advertising, just, right? Just fantastic. Place. Yeah. We, we also had Mono, uh, another great agency uh, in, uh, in Minneapolis. Uh, Yamamoto, which is more of the B2B focus um, in, in Minneapolis. So it was, uh, yeah, we, we had a lot, of, a lot of action there. I want to get to Emerald, but before we uh, get there, Give us the benefit. You have real perspective of having studied this space in a very real and thoughtful way for 25 some odd years. The agency business uh, continues to evolve. You've got six big players now and a lot of independents. You've got two sort of emerging holding companies, if you will, an S4 and what David Jones has put together at the Brand Tech Group. What's your take? Would you want to go into that business today? Do you think it's a growth area? 
Are they, is it like trying to stop an iceberg from melting? What, what, what's your take on, I t- sort of tipped you where I think, but what's your take on the state of the agency business? I guess I don't work for an ad agency anymore uh, is probably the easiest way to say it. I, I love the agency business and, I, and I'm a huge believer in the value that a good agency can deliver, especially when they're really aligned tightly with a client, um, which is always the trick on great work is, is clients you're aligned with uh, from, from what I saw and what my experience was. Uh, but, but I think there's, there's a lot of challenges uh, in that industry at least from the seat I sit in, um, there's a lot of economic challenges to the industry. The, the pressure on fees, the pressure on, on retainers uh, in general, uh, move to project-based business, um, the, uh, the rise of procurement departments on the client side, treating agencies like commodity uh, is tough. Um, and, and I think is going to be a, a drag on the financial uh, profile of the industry for, for a long, long time. Um, uh, there's also, uh, you know, anchor businesses that are um, a bit more legacy that, that at least all the holding companies still have to deal with as much as they don't really talk about them. Uh, I, I did look at, I was called by some, you know, new emerging types of holding companies uh, there are some interesting things out there, and there are people doing uh, things differently um, and, and, and getting very creative at call, solving clients' business problems without getting caught in, in the trap that some of the larger holding companies uh, are in. Uh, but I think it's, it's a tough slog, uh, for sure. Uh, now, for, for an independent uh, that's positioned certain ways, uh, there's a tremendous amount of runway. Uh, that's, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I, I uh, have sort of a mixed view, and I, I don't subscribe to the view that the big legacy agencies are all in big trouble. Uh, you know, I, I still think I agree it comes down to talent and leadership. And I look at, in particular, I'm a huge fan of the team at McCann. And I think McCann today is an example, Chris McDonald and that whole leadership team, that you can do great work and you can run a good business. Agreed. But I think it's harder. Agreed. Uh, I'd I'd say that um, the benefit of the holding companies, uh, and and I've been asked this question a lot by investors who know of my experience, um, the benefit of the holding companies is they're large, they generate a ton of cash, right? Advertising agencies is a great cash generating business. Uh, from a financial standpoint, and they actually can buy themselves out of the problem. Right. It's true. And so uh, uh, now they may not be the, the, the growth vehicles that maybe they were 10, 20 years ago, uh, but they're going to be sustainable businesses. Right. That's just less interesting to me. Right. Um, right. It, th- that, that's the reality. Uh, and, I, and I think there's... Um, you know, and, and combined with those other pressures. So, uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm excited about growth businesses um, and uh, being able to scale uh, platforms like what we did at MDC. Uh, it's what the plan is here at Emerald, is, is to similarly um, evolve this to a platform that can scale very, very meaningfully. And, and I think we're well on our way. Uh, but, um, you know, they're, they're not going to die. 
I, I, I don't think they're going to die. They're not going to have massive cuts. There are needs. Large clients need large agencies. They can't, they don't, they're not set up to handle small agencies. It's part of the challenge. Um, and so, you know, there's a room for, there's room for those large entities with their client service infrastructures to handle big complex accounts. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. And I, what I hope doesn't disappear is, you know, the history and to a lesser degree, the present the industry has of these incredibly charismatic characters and people. Yeah. You know, and I think we talked about Chuck. There are so many others. Um, and I worry sometimes about, um, you know, a little bit more of a soulless leadership uh, coming out of there and the disappearance of a lot of those charismatic figures. Well, I think you've already seen that a lot of the holding companies. Uh, now, I don't know any of the leaders now really personally that well. So, I, I, I but I think you you've moved on from the the founders um, yeah. to the professional leaders, um, some of which come from outside the industry. Uh, that is just a bit different, and yeah. um, you know, I I, I think you know, where where we succeeded for for many years at MDC was was striking the right balance of running a business, but respecting the creative soul of each organization that was part of us. Yeah. And, and that made us the, the preferred buyer of those companies is the reality uh, because that became our reputation. And thus, you know, we would buy companies. We like to say we bought companies that weren't for sale because they weren't for sale to the other holding companies, but they right. were to us because of that and because of the track record of, of uh, bringing in emerging agencies and then helping them achieve their ambitions, yeah. putting them in a position with the right mix of business and creative freedom to scale their organizations. And, you know, a lot of the names that I mentioned earlier, you know, our sweet spot, we buy companies typically between 10 and 20 million of revenue. And, you know, five or six of those, we then grew to 150 to 200 million of revenue. Like that, that is, um, that's real. It's unicornish in the ad yeah. agency world. And, and yet it was a little more commonplace uh, in our network. Uh, and a lot of it was that balance. Um, and we talked about it all the time. And it was, and it was friction all the time, especially me being the CFO. So, it, you know, that, but that was the, the challenge and, and that's where we succeeded. And, and you uh, were dealing with some real characters. Richie Kirschenbaum's a good friend. You know, these are some real characters. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, that, they had, uh, MDC had bought that right before I joined. Uh, so I, I can't claim credit for, for that deal. Uh, but, but an amazing amazing agency with an incredible heritage and actually just listened this morning as I was getting ready for this to your great minds podcast with, with Richard yeah. uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, he's, uh, he's a good man. I love him. He gave me a bottle of that Blackwell rum oh, that's nice. over there that uh, he uh, developed with Chris Blackwell. Um, and he, he still to this day, what an interesting guy. They, they were, you know, one of, if not the originators of this, the execution can be anything uh, yeah. of creative ideas. And I think, uh, and then Crispin Porter took it to another level um, when, the, and when they came along uh, and, and you know, when the digital era kind of had already started. Yeah, no, that was a subservient check-in and all those other great campaigns. Amazing. You, you remember them forever. That's right. Okay, so you have this 12-year, give or take, run at MDC. Yes. And there's then a pivot in your career. You were on some boards for a number of things. I think Media Math board you were on, so some other stuff in between. But somewhere around the beginning of 2020, you make a leap uh, to Emerald. 
can we talk about that journey to Emerald? Uh, and let's really dig in and, and talk about our shared future as part of the Emerald family. For sure. I, so at, at the end of MDC, we, we struck a deal with uh, Mark Penn and Stagwell, and, and I led uh, the uh, transaction uh, on that front uh, to come in and, and take over the business. Um, and I transitioned for a little while and, and then left and, and, and ultimately decided to join Emerald um, because I saw a lot in Emerald that was very similar to what I saw in the early days of, uh, or, or when I joined MDC, uh, which was there was this um, untapped platform that had huge potential to scale uh, in an industry that had opportunity uh, to um, consolidate and that it made sense to consolidate uh, businesses via acquisition, um, uh, but also needed to uh, learn how to grow organically uh, as well. And so a lot of the, the things that we needed to overcome at MDC uh, when I got there, I saw here and, and I thought, like, maybe we could do this again. Um, the other reason that drew me here was I am a huge believer in the value of face-to-face, -face, of, of live interactions, of experiential marketing. And uh, as a student of the industry um, and a studier of this industry for a very long time, um, I knew that if you look at the last 20, 25 years of uh, ad spend, that um, all aspects of quote-unquote legacy advertising have flatlined or declined, surely lost a lot of market share, except one, experiential marketing. Experiential marketing, as the digital era emerged, as digital disruption and media fragmentation split apart marketing budgets, continued to compound growth at 4 to 5% a year. And the reason is, is because face-to-face -face cuts through all the clutter, all the, all the, the, the what fragmentation has done to all other media, if you can get someone face-to-face -face and talk to them and show them your products or services, it cuts through all that. And so it's very high return on investment. Uh, and, and, uh, and so I'm a big believer in that. And I saw it firsthand uh, at MDC. Um, in 2010, we bought an agency called Team Enterprises out of Fort Lauderdale. Uh, uh, Dan Gregory and Sean O'Toole uh, built this amazing experiential agency. It's one of the largest experiential agency platforms in the country. Uh, and um, similar to what I said about Cole McVoy, I mean, it was just um, consistent growth uh, throughout the time, increased allocation of budgets, increased value uh, to, to their customers, very measurable uh, because of that interactions, um, the number of interactions, the number of leads you get. It's basically, it's a lead generation marketing vehicle. Um, and if you think about my early, early insight when I was a research analyst, over time, and I, it's played out and I still believe it, more and more brand dollars are going to shift to direct response dollars, to lead generation dollars uh, in that way. And this very much fits into that. And I know it's a little bit of a different view of it, right? Because we're not Google and we're we search and we're not the Facebook, you know, social media right, but you're streams. A, but you're a connector of people. But we're a connector of people in a very targeted way. Um, and, and Emerald is, is essentially a B2B platform. Uh, and so um, there is nothing more valuable in B2B marketing 
then knowing exactly who the buyers of the products and services are at the customers and putting them in front of you in person. Right. And that's what Emerald does. And it does it brilliantly with amazing brands, with scaled platforms. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and that is something that could scale. And then if you can think about the business um, a little more broadly than just trade shows, which is the core business of Emerald, and say that, well, um, if we can deliver more qualified leads to our customers, they will give us more of their marketing budget because it's quantifiable. Um, and, and, and it's why businesses like search marketing have grown so much is because the return is there. It's simple as that. Right. Um, and so if you can deliver an incremental return on the, on the spend that someone's making in marketing, their budget becomes infinite. And I, I say that very seriously. But marketing budgets can be infinite if you can deliver quantifiable return for them. And, and so um, if we can add to our capabilities uh, more technology, more data, um, that we can drive more higher volume of leads, if we can increase the insight into those leads so that they're more intent-based leads and provide higher ROI to our clients, they will give us more and more money. It's a really simple concept. And so that's the basis on which we're building Emerald. Um, uh, Hervé Sedki, our CEO, um, you mentioned before, uh, and I are very aligned uh, on, on the opportunity here. Uh, and, uh, and, and we're chasing it. Uh, and we're really uh, thankful that we have a very aligned board with a very aligned majority shareholder in Onyx, uh, and we have the capital on our balance sheet to do it. Uh, and, and, and so that's what we're pursuing. And so uh, what we've done is we've added businesses to the portfolio in the last 18 to 24 months, uh, like a, a transaction engine, a B2B e-commerce transaction platform, because B2B e-commerce is not well developed at all. Um, it's still very old school. It's, it's, a lot of it is as if the digital age never never emerged because every industry is, is different. Their, their language is different. The way they operate, the way they sell wholesale is different. Um, and, uh, and, and so there haven't been platforms that have really emerged out of small industry niches. But we already know the buyers and sellers across 15 different industries. We already know how all those industries work intimately. We're, we're the bringer together of those buyers and sellers already. Oh, and we're also the publisher of the B2B media content in that industry in most cases as well. So we have a real opportunity to bring leads in and scale through a funnel and drive them to transaction. And with that, have an unmatchable first party data set that can then allow us to optimize that journey um, and, uh, and ultimately monetize it for Emerald uh, and, and continue to build our business. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more with you about that notion of the sweet spot being that intersection and overlay of the digital and experiential. And it's what we've been saying for, for years. So we're completely aligned substantively and, and philosophically. Um, let's talk about something that's unusual, that you and Hervé both joined the company at a time when the world was pretty much closed for business. Uh, you start in 2020, or they started, I think, in 21? Beginning of 21, he started. That's unusual. Um, so I'm going to correct you slightly. Um, I joined six weeks before the pandemic. Okay. Um, and, okay. And so I did not choose 
to join a live event business in the pandemic. Um, it chose me. Okay. Uh, and, so January, um, the world and, shuts in March. And then immediately, you know, revenues dropped 90%. Um, and, and so we had a very different focus, as you can imagine, in those early days. And, uh, uh, and then Hervé joined in, in January uh, of 21. Uh, and, you know, we had immediate alignment and meeting of the minds uh, on, on the opportunity here. Uh, and where it could go. And, you know, Hervé has, has an amazing background and, and he's another brilliant guy. Uh, and, you know, we've, I think we've meshed really, really well uh, to help build this for the future. Yeah, my observation, you know, is that I, I, I would never, I would lose the bet if somebody said, have these guys only been working together a couple of years? Because <laughs> it doesn't appear that way at all. But, but talk about that challenge of, you know, leading a company, the two of you, you didn't meet a lot of your key people in person for a long period of time. A lot of the stuff that you were inherited, if you will, or were planning on building was put on pause. You know, that's an unusual set of circumstances to take over the leadership of a pretty big ship. It, it was very unusual. Uh, you know, for me, I, I was able to make a couple of trips to meet people before the pandemic hit. Uh, but I was, you know, in those early days of, of the proverbial drinking from the fire hose. Uh, and, uh, and so a lot of people I had not met in person. Uh, and um, at, at the time, um, Brian Field, who's our chief operating officer, was the interim CEO. Um, you know, sadly, the, the prior CEO was ill uh, and, and eventually passed away. Um, and, uh, and so Brian and I, uh, and he had only joined in June bef before, so he was fairly new as well. Uh, but we were thrown right into, you know, making all the hard decisions to keep the business uh, going. Um, uh, some layoffs, some furloughs, uh, uh, a, a lot of very, very difficult right. decisions. Right. Uh, and, and ultimately, you know, uh, capitalizing the business to make sure that we had the balance sheet to withstand uh, what was to come, of which we had no idea how severe and how long uh, it would last. Uh, and so that first year was was quite unpleasant, I, I have to say, and uh, uh, and you know was not really the ideal way for the organization to be introduced to me. Yeah, no, listen, that that's you're not unique in that regard. I mean, no. uh, and uh, but to be in a leadership position, um, that's a special set of circumstances. And then slowly but surely, the sun starts to come out again, and things start to improve. That must have been emotionally, forget about the financial business piece of it, but just as a leader, again, of a pretty big ship, the emotional journey as things start to come back to life, that's got to really resonate with you in a very unique and special way. <laughs> it, it was really special to go to those first trade shows post the reopening. Um, it, it's, it's true. Um, and, and and through that time was was able to so we made a lot of changes and we brought in um, some different people. Uh, I, and I'll just, because I need to shout out, right? Um, just, like, uh, Mitch Gendel, who is the general counsel at MDC, uh, came and joined us. He was the first person I brought in uh, and really helped us through those times and, and really remake this organization. Uh, I, I know it's legal, but, but the, the business sense and then how to, how to deal with, with customers and refunds and uh, how to deal with vendors and force majeure clauses so that we could try to you know get out of things so we could you know stay alive and you know to have him uh, by by our side uh, was was really really valuable um, and uh, 
and then ultimately brought in an, another the, the uh, former MDC person, Rena Kinchi, who's our head of people and culture, who who led uh, HR and talent at at, at MDC, um, and uh, uh, as well, and and um, you know we're, we're immensely helpful in, in help, helping to begin to build the culture that we're striving for. We have a ways to go, uh, that's for sure. The, the the pandemic, I don't think, helped anyone's culture uh, as, no. as a company. Uh, but um, really thankful for that. Uh, and then having the events start and be out there, get out there, see the business in person, um, meet the people in person, in their element, uh, was was unbelievable, uh, especially at a time of high stress. Um, I, I'd say uh, I, I surely had a stressful job, uh, but but they had a more stressful job. Uh, it, it was it was their everything, their events, and they had to cancel them. and And I think the work to put into cancel event was as much as it was to set up the event, uh, to have to call and and you know each and every vendor deal with every client, uh, our our sales teams, our our brand teams, uh, our operations teams that that were on the front lines. And so, uh, to be able to see them put on their 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 first iteration post pandemic, to thank them. Uh, to see the success, to see the the hugs they got from their customers, um, who were grateful to be there again because it meant so much to their business, uh, was was amazing to see. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a very emotional when the people come back. You know, it's very rewarding, and I think when you're in the people business as we are, that's sort of the ultimate validation. Yeah, that you know that you've done a good job if the room is full. You know, you did a good job. That's one, certainly not the only key measure, but a key measure. So talk about, you know, getting back out there. Not only were you overseeing a pretty big portfolio, but you also began to make a lot of acquisitions. You've been very busy uh, the last year or so. Talk about that process, not just as it relates to us, but... You know, MJ Biz, uh, you just acquired another great business, uh, Bolton. Talk about that process of sort of the, the finding. I guess it, there's no two ways that it happens, but, you know, you lead that process for the company. Uh, you know, w- one of the opportunities of this industry is um, it's extremely fragmented, uh, and yet it makes sense to have a scaled entity. It, it makes tremendous financial sense, uh, operational sense. Uh, and so um, it, it behooves us continuing to build this business via acquisition. And, and so if we're going to do that, then we should do it in the most strategic way possible. Uh, so we, we have um, two underlying, well, really three underlying pillars to our, our growth strategy, but I'll, I'll focus on, on two of them. Um, one is 365-day-a-year engagement. Part of the evolution of trade shows is, well, historically, they happen once or twice a year. And that was it. And so uh, the teams would, would call, they'd sell a customer, they'd, they'd get an attendee to show up, and then they didn't hear from us again until we sold them the next show and they'd show up, and, and that was it. And, and yet we had um, these, these B2B media assets that were run very loosely alongside, not fully integrated in their approach and strategy, that, prevent, that, that provided an opportunity uh, to better engage the audience throughout the year and provide value. Um, and so if we can better align the event with the media asset, um, we could uh, create more loyal customers. We could build more of a mode around our event, make it a more must-attend event. Uh, we can leverage that content better on site for conference sessions, uh, et cetera. Uh, we can leverage the, 
side to, to understand what people are interested in because, by the way, it's no secret at this point in 2022, we, we kind of know what people read online if we own the media site, right? So we should do something with that data. And so one of the first things, actually they started before I got here, um, is uh, an effort to consolidate our customer database. It had never been done here. Uh, and, uh, and, and this was, I was writing about this in you know, 1998 uh, about um, bringing together customer databases, leveraging companies like Axiom and you know, with, had massive data centers and uh, back when things were on tape uh, the, to, um, to do that here. So we actually can have a view of our customers across all our products. So can you imagine if we know um, what an attendee is reading online and they come to our show and, you know, there's scanning technologies at the shows. So we also know what booths they've been scanned at what conference session they went into, we can create a more enhanced profile of that customer. That goes, so we can add intent to that customer. If that customer is reading about certain products within an industry, I think it's reasonable to assume that when they come to the trade show, they're looking for those products. And then, so what if we can then take that to the next level? What if we can connect them with people who sell those products directly? And that's our matchmaking initiative we're rolling out. And so uh, we're rolling out at every one of our events this year where we are going to leverage the database to bring together buyers and sellers with set appointments so that they can make their time at the trade show more valuable and more efficient. Now for the exhibitor where we make most of our money, um, that is very direct ROI. It goes back to the value of leads can we bring more leads? Can we say this year we brought you X appointments and next year we brought you 20% more than that? And that can help us justify the value of the event, help with our pricing strategies, help us monetize in different ways. And this is how we can build Emerald very effectively. And, and so um, we're, we're leveraging uh, M&A to bring in other pieces so that we can fill out that, that cycle. Um, and so that's why we bought the e-commerce platform. Uh, and we bought a business uh, called Plum River Technologies. Uh, it goes to market uh, as Elastic Suite. Uh, it came out of the action sports industry and has many of the major brands in uh, outdoor and, and beach and surf and water sports and, um, uh, and, and across a, a bunch of uh, businesses. Um, that is a subscription software product that, that all of their B2B commerce is executed off of. And, and what's brilliant about it is that it, it automates a lot of the workflow in the back end. So it's a, a tremendous efficiency driver and it pays for itself without a dollar of commerce going through it because of the workflow automation. And then it allows for e-com like you would buy on, on Amazon in a way. Uh, but, but the complexity of B2B is you know, not every buyer has the right to buy every SKU of a seller. Um, some have exclusives, some have, they're tiered. They surely have different pricing. They surely have different... Um, delivery times, manufacturing lead times, et cetera. And, and so there's, that's a lot of the complexity around it. And, uh, and so now, uh, going back to what I talked about a bit earlier, bring together you know, intent from what they read, from what they attend at the show, and then did they meet and did they buy? We can close the loop. Uh, and we're porting that technology into more industries uh, over the next 12 months and, and want to make it's going to be a core offering across uh, most uh, if not all of Emerald shows in, in the coming years. Uh, we also then were looking to buy, the other part of the strategy is, uh, we're calling it portfolio optimization. Uh, it, it needed a name. 
Um, the optimization is a really important word in that. Um, we can grow faster if we buy faster growing businesses. It's a really simple concept. If we buy businesses in, in faster growing industries, um, so we're looking for what we think are long-term or, or, or permanent growth industries, which led us to uh, pursue and eventually acquire uh, MJ BizCon, uh, w uh, which is the largest B2B media company in the cannabis sector, uh, with uh, a huge event that's uh, this coming November. We're very excited about first one under our watch, uh, and and the go-to business media in the industry, um, which is a great integrated model uh, that we're looking to copy uh, everywhere else. Uh, we added uh, Advertising Week, um, and and we'll probably talk more about that. But um, ultimately. You go look at advertising, they're like, oh, that's a cyclical industry. It's only going to grow as an industry, you know, two, three points a year. And we look at it very differently because, because where, where you've positioned this business is actually in the disruption of advertising. And, and so um, it's the evolution of advertising, uh, which is a much, much faster growing industry. And, and one, I think, will grow um, uh, probably at double digit rates in and of itself as an industry for, for many, many, many years to come as technology, new technologies continue to emerge, new platforms emerge, et cetera, and they, they need to reach um, the audience that buy those products and services. Uh, and, and so we very much view this as a growth industry tied to portfolio optimization, um, but also ties very much into the 365 engagement that, that we want to address. And, and, and you guys are doing some really interesting and amazing things that we think we can learn from, again, for the rest of the portfolio. And then Bulletin, uh, which we bought last month, um, is another e-commerce platform, uh, very focused on um, uh, gift, accessories, um, home furnishings type uh, businesses, uh, but, but emerging ones, largely female-founded ones. Uh, and, and we have a very large portfolio of events uh, that service those industries specifically. Uh, and we think that we could uh, uh, marry those two together to bring a lot of new, uh, innovative uh, brands to market uh, to our buyer community at our events, uh, as well as bring it all online in a more accelerated way and drive that, that, um, that the B2B side of e-commerce in that industry. Uh, and so it's been an interesting time. And there's a couple other ones we've done as well, but uh, you know, those are surely the, the key but, ones. But, you know, as we sitting here now for however long it's been, we go back to the beginning of the conversation and all that work you were doing, you know, starting research, really looking under the hood and understanding how it all worked. Yes. And almost like an old school mechanic, you know, today you open the hood of a car, I can, can barely figure out where the battery is. An old engine, a 60s, I had two, my grandfather bought me an old 68 Mustang and you would open the hood of that, you could, you could see everything even if you weren't a mechanic. You gain that skill set and using it now as engines are much more complex to be able to put the pieces together to produce higher horsepower or, you know, more specifically, as you said, to go from a relationship that's two, three, four, five days to one that's 365 days, you can really see for you how you've acquired the skill set to be able to conceive something like that, which many people can do, but more importantly, to actually implement it, which very few people can do. If I had a superpower, I think it's, it's, it's that. It's, it's, I, I understand the big picture of the, of the whole industry, of the whole marketing budget, and, and how they move. Um, and, and it has helped me see how it will evolve. Um, and, it, and it comes from that early focus on data, because everything 
comes out of how data has changed the game. Everything in my mind over the last 20 years. And um, uh, now obviously there's technology, that is, but, but it's underlying is the data economy. And if you understand the data economy, then it's very easy to see what's next um, as things emerge, uh, which is why I spend so much time on, on ad tech. Uh, and, and, and part of that was, was by luck, um, you know, getting exposure to a company called advertising.com in, in, the, in the late 90s um, that, that I was introduced to the founders by a friend. They're like, oh, you, you study advertising, you should meet these guys. And, and, and they, you know, blew my mind on what they were doing. And, and that was, uh, helped me see what, uh, ultimately then what the internet would become uh, as a marketing vehicle. Um, and, and then at MDC, um, working with um, Barry Lowenthal and Darren Herman at the Media Kitchen, who conceived of Varick Media Management, uh, which was the original, the, the first agency programmatic trading desk. And they built that on the back of MediaMath, which is how I met MediaMath. And, and so, you know, kind of one fed into the other, and, and, uh, but it then uh, but it allowed, allowed me to understand when, when Darren and Barry pitched this idea that was a bit foreign to everyone else at the parent company uh, at MDC, and I said, oh, no, I, I get that. Yeah, right. let's do that. Right. Um, and, and so we did. Uh, and, um, and so, so I, that ecosystem has been my guiding light on where the world is going. And, and so um, th that's why I, I very much believe that if, if we here can keep building out in a more focused way this first-party data set of, of very high-value B2B uh, contacts um, and build out their profiles uh, that we can build this business on the back of it. Fantastic story, and it really all does tie together. Okay, let's talk a little bit about advertising. I guess this will be the gratuitous part of our, our conversation, but let's not make it too gratuitous. We met through uh, someone who I have enormous respect for, who's a member of the Emerald Board, um, Linda Clarizio. We met Linda years ago uh, when she was president of AOL and she had a great run at Nielsen. And Linda and I had connected with no agenda, one of those COVID, you know, what are you doing? You know, let's, let's uh, catch up calls. And she shared that um, she was on the board of Emerald and mentioned you and said, David knows Advertising Week. I think the Outcasts concert came up early in our conversation. I know you're a big music fan. And uh, from that initial, hey, you two should have a chat, something might happen. You know, lo and behold, here we are as part of the Emerald family and, and could not be more thrilled. Talk about, you know, a little bit about what you thought, you know, made us a good fit for Emerald. And let's talk together about uh, that notion of uh, optimization and scaling, which is uh, important agenda items for all of us. So I, I'm a longtime attendee of Advertising Week. That's um, probably the best place to start. And, and so when this idea came up, um, I, I immediately believed that it, it was of value because I know the value of, of this business and of this event. Uh, and at MDC, you know, we, we spent a lot of money flying people in from around the country from our different agencies to come to Advertising Week. Uh, and a lot of our clients were at Advertising Week and, and the sessions were amazing. And, um, uh, and we would, frankly, 
work really hard, uh, our team with you, um, I think initially Katie Kempner on our side, sure, uh, sure. When, when she was with us at Crispin, um, you know, working with you on, on, you know, can we get miles on stage? Can we get, uh, you know, different agency leaders on stage? And, and, and we surely wrote the checks for it too. So, um, you know, uh, uh, but, but, um, I, I also, um, so, so I, I believe in the value of the event for the industry it serves and the sustainability of it. Uh, and, and I believe in the continued uh, evolution of the industry that will, as I mentioned before, I, I think that will for a very long time provide massive growth opportunities. So from a business standpoint, value, growth, like that's checking my boxes, right? Um, and, uh, and, then within, um, and then within Emerald, we have a, 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 a couple of, of really strong uh, B2B marketing events, the B2B Marketing Exchange. Uh, within our portfolio that was acquired in uh, 2019 as part of the acquisition of G3 Communications. Uh, and, and we have an amazing event around um, really the, the Amazon ecosystem, e-commerce, but expanding out to the other e-com platforms uh, called Prosper. And, and so we kind of began to talk about this vision of can we surround kind of ad tech, martech, e-com um, with uh, with ad week, with advertising week, uh, with advertising week at the center of that as the scaled event, and and really leverage uh, the platform together, and uh, and it became internally a, a very big idea, uh, but but rooted a lot in the f in the fact that um, Linda's experience with you, and and she's brilliant and had a brilliant career, uh, and and my experience with you, knowing as the one who wrote the checks and had to debate people about their budgets, knowing the value of this event and how important it was to us at MDC to, to educate our team, uh, to, to build our business uh, going forward. Uh, and, and I think there's a tremendous opportunity to continue to scale this, um, hopefully with our, our scaled organization and resources uh, going forward. Well, it's uh, been incredibly humbling you know, this whole process and now you shift gears very quickly, you know, once everything is aligned, now it's all about going forward and growth, keeping our eye on the balls right in front of us or the New York flagship is in just a couple months. Um, but the opportunity to scale and grow here in America and beyond and to be part of a bigger ship. And uh, I caught up yesterday at lunch with Bob Safian, who's an old buddy, uh, you know him when he was uh, editor of Fast Company. Great guy. Mm -hmm. And Bob has been on our stages many times. He came to London uh, for us a couple times and terrific guy. And um, he said, why'd you do it? And the answer was, I want it to be here in 10 years and 20 years and 30 years. And I think organically, we've only really scratched the surface of what we're capable of. You know, organic growth is great, but it's really hard. And... You never want to say that you hit a ceiling or that you've taken something as far as you can. You always find a way to raise the ceiling to take it farther and further. But the opportunity to be part of a, of a you know, very forward-looking, aggressive, you know, forward-facing, thinking, growth-oriented organization, that will be the real legacy here that in, you know, 2032, 2042, that this thing will be much bigger, I hope unrecognizable from what it is now. I think that's a big part of you know, what drove this whole opportunity. And, and then the humanity 
piece of it, you know, that I think we really clicked as people with you and Hervé and your whole team, Johanna and Beth and everybody that we've worked with and we're really just at the very beginning. And the way you handled on, on the day when we told all the employees that you all came to our office and spent time here and that we did the Emerald Town Hall from our office here, I think that really showed a lot of not just, you know, a lot of smarts upstairs, but showed a lot of heart. And I think all of our people felt that. So I really appreciate that. And I've appreciated the chance, you know, to get to know you, you know, much better, you know, the last, you know, couple of months. And we couldn't be more excited about the future. It's been a great start. I, I agree. And, uh, and it, was, it was our privilege really to come here and meet your team. Uh, and Beth and I, on our way over here, uh, we're talking about the, how eager we are to try to keep getting more face-to-face interaction with our own team. Uh, this Zoom stuff is hard. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was great to be here, and, and hopefully we're coming over here a lot to to uh, spend time with people. Uh, but but I, I couldn't agree more on the on the opportunity to scale Advertising Week, and and you know what you've done on uh, bringing this brand globally uh, is is and really bootstrapped is is really impressive, and uh, and is a great model uh, I think for other parts of Emerald. And I, I think the other uh, you know the other aspect that you know we think um, we can learn a lot from you about is um, how uh, you have taken your, your brand relationships, your customer relationships globally with you uh, to help you build out the platform because you're delivering on their need. Uh, and and you're, the sponsors of, of, of Advertising Week want to reach decision makers uh, in Tokyo, in Sydney, uh, in London, uh, in Mexico City, and, uh, and you're giving them a, a forum and bringing them with you and leveraging your existing relationships and, and, and thus are are executing against that, um, I think, better than, than we are. Uh, and so you know, we're really hopeful we can learn from you uh, on how we do that better. And, and that's a, a big part of the success of this as well. Well, listen, if there is anything that we can teach you, I'm a little worried about you. But uh, I think it's great. And thank you uh, for that. And we couldn't be more excited to get a chance to contribute. It's, uh, you know, this is not a one-way street or a two-way street. It's a free-flowing street where the traffic is going, you know, I guess organized anarchy, uh, <laughs> all with an eye towards growth and moving things forward. And uh, we couldn't be more excited. And I thank you for doing this. I'd love to have you back in a year and let's see how we're doing. Sounds good. Uh, together. And uh, thanks for doing this, David. An absolute joy. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. As a marketer, you know it's crucial to spend your budget wisely. Mountain's self-serve platform, Performance TV, helps you do that with data-backed insights that take the guesswork out of measuring your ad's impact. With Mountain, you can track your connected TV ad performance in real time and see how it compares to your other channels with leading web analytics integrations. You can even see who's visiting your website or making a purchase after watching an ad, regardless of what household device they use. Visit mountain.com to learn more.